Good evening, everybody. I hope you can hear. It's reasonably amplified in here. Um, welcome to the LSE, and uh, welcome to this last in the series of events, which are part of a collaboration between the European Institute and the Forum for European Philosophy under the title The Heart of Europe. Um, one of the reasons I chose that title over a year ago when we were first given some money to do this series was to think about Britain in that context in which it looked like a bit of a semi-detached heart. Um, but I'm thinking today that uh, with what we're going to hear and also with reference to something else, perhaps what's needed is a change of heart. And I'm thinking here of uh, a sense that was brought up in the speech by the Archbishop of Canterbury that made such a stir a week or so ago in which what he was really talking about was the idea of a certain kind of transformation of Europe from a Europe that wanted to universalize its own civilization or the universalizability of the European civilization which would, as it was, colonize every other in its model to a, a, a Europe which could transform itself out of itself in a, in a direction which perhaps also belonged to something of the heritage of that universal model, but one where Europe could transform itself into a kind of mobile home fit for an astonishing diversity of cultures and faiths and an incredible, incredibly diverse population. The Archbishop had his own ideas about how that transformation might take place in the realm of law and although I know that our speaker tonight isn't going to be covering the same ground as the Archbishop, uh, it's also the realm of law that we'll be considering this evening. Um, I'm delighted to welcome uh, to Talk in the Heart of Europe series Professor Damien Chalmers from the uh, European Institute at the LSE. Damien's the author, with a number of other people, of a book on European law, Union law in 2006. And um, it's European law and thinking about the relationships between law and society which have marked Damien's work. He says in his brief description that tonight he's thinking about whether, a more differentiated form, whether more differentiated forms of membership would be attractive and better capture the sense of place many non-nationals wish to create for themselves in their host societies. And so again we have this question for Europe of Europe's conception of its own place and the way this relates to the non-European. And I do think, I mean, Damien can correct me, but the... the um, the ambition is in a certain way similar to the Archbishop who wanted to say that Europe cannot or should not for much longer regard its uh, conception of a European civilization as a simply universalizable model. Or if it does, it's going to have to undergo a significant internal transformation. Now this talk tonight, I've got to tell you, is going to be available 
online for public consumption as a podcast on the LSE website, but you don't really know, need to know that because you're here. And, um, and um, it's my great pleasure then to uh, introduce for you this evening David Charles. Thank you very much, Simon. I have to say it's with a bit of trepidation that I stand up here. I think I'm here more because of a drunken comment I once made to Simon over a couple of glasses of wine where I poo-pooed and dismissed uh, the idea of a universal right of participation in favour of something else. And I sort of continued that sort of sense of, if you like, stumbling along by suddenly remembering I couldn't remember which folder I put my PowerPoint in. Uh, and so you've, you've got to look at it in black and white, I'm afraid, rather than glorious uh, multicolour. I should say also that this talk today is, I mean, I, I would locate it not so much in philosophy. There will be, it will sort of reflect on certain legal institutions and hopefully a bit, a bit of political and social theory, and that's, that's where I'm coming from. And I'll explain why I think that's particularly apposite for the idea of European citizenship. So let me start, start first of all with what we mean, which is commonly understood by European citizenship. European citizenship, as established by the EU in 1993, is in many ways seen as the highest institutional expression, at least, even though it may be modest in many of its outputs, of transnational, transnational political community. It gave, for the first time, a series of political, economic, and social rights to the non-national that, uh, that they could exercise in the territory of their host state. Not only that, if interpreted broadly, particularly through, its anti through the EU anti-discrimination law, it's engaged in a certain call for a reimagination of political community for a politics of difference, where increasingly EU law was used to, if you like, identify and protect various groups that had been seen as traditionally uh, underrepresented or underprotected, be they women, the disabled, ethnic minorities, etc. It asked states to reconsider membership rights. Now, it's always on the one hand, put as the, greatest, the greatest institutional expression, maybe a very modest one of transnational political community because that's all there is, uh, and other regional authorities consider it and seek to emulate it. But alongside that, it's criticised for its limits. Typically, the argument is that it doesn't go far enough in the membership rights it grants. In particular, it doesn't give sufficient political rights to non-nationals, notably the right to vote and stand in national elections, and the Eurocentrism is criticised, that it doesn't give rights to non-EU nationals. And that's a rather standard story. And it's that story of EU citizenship as this incipient form of transnational political community that could go a little bit further if only we were a bit more liberal that I have particular problematics with. And I think that vision of on the one hand something that's Eurocentric and on the other that doesn't go far enough in extending national membership rights to other EU nationals, has to face a couple of paradoxes, a couple of uncomfortable facts. The first one concerns the treatment of non-EU nationals. 
non-EU nationals, if we look significantly at membership rights here in the EU, constitute a far greater proportion of the population than other EU nationals. Typically, they're about 4 to 5% in most member states. This is notwithstanding the story of potential detention, marginalisation, risk of death, bonded labour, that many non-nationals face in both coming, coming to the EU and during their period in the EU. It's a significant number, and if one looks at that number of 4 to 5%, which is almost half almost, sorry, twice as big as the number of EU nationals living in other member states, even after the recent enlargements, one finds that over half of them are what are called long-term residents. They have been here for, they've been in their host state for five or more years and have pretty much the same rights as EU citizens. But this story of Eurocentrism doesn't make sense in, if you like, grounded empirical reality. There is another story out there. The other, sto the other story that what we need to do is go further and recognise greater rights for EU nationals in host states, so greater rights for Poles in the UK, faces another uncomfortable paradox. And it's this, that supposedly EU citizens are the most privileged of migrants in their political rights. They can stand and vote in European Parliament elections and local elections, municipal elections, in their host societies. This is meant to be, you know, most exalted, almost the most exalted sense sort of participation, if we could only go one step further, and give them the right to vote and stand in national elections. In a, however, unfortunately, in only two of the EU member states, Ireland and Austria, are over half of EU nationals registered. That's to say that if you go to any other state other than Ireland and, Ireland and Austria, an EU foreigner, if we want to use that term, only half of them will bother to register to vote. Of that half, if you look at Austria, only 9% of them regularly vote. Austria, which has one of the highest proportions of non-EU nationals living in its territory, also finds itself having one of the least politically active groups in its territory. If they were a constituency in their own right, voting for the European Parliament, they would be the most apathetic of all groups, notwithstanding that they are the group that's meant to benefit the most from this transnational political union that we call the European Union. Now, contrast that, if you like, political apathy, on the other hand, with what we witnessed here in the UK with the recent Polish elections. One can't just denigrate these people as passive or states as pathologically racist or uneven. Because in the last elections, there were, here uh, for the recent elections for Poland, there were 22 polling stations for the whole of the UK. That meant on average that any Polish voter, if they wanted to exercise their rights, had to tra travel 80 miles. Notwithstanding that, 68,000 registered, which was a significant number, and about of those, 38,000 voted despite long queues and long journeys for most of them. It was on a par, actually, with about 55%. The average in Poland was about 60%, with electoral turnouts in Poland itself. So this categorization of this community as a potentially passive community driven by some sort of hegemonies not to exercise its rights doesn't make much sense 
to me. Neither does the strict division between Europe and non-Europe. And it's that paradox that I want to think about and was, if you like, the prompt for me wanting to think a little bit more about what we meant by citizenship and political community here in the European Union or more broadly, dare I say, in Europe. And I start from, this is where, if you like, my lecture begins, from a very dogmatic position. I think there are two ways of conceiving citizenship, and I, for better or for worse, reject one totally. The one I reject totally is the one that sees citizenship as some sort of universal, relatively floating container for freedom and equality and a series of open-ended entitlements that sees citizenship as about equal membership and freedom for all, and it can expand ever exponentially. A rootless concept that is ultimately about open-ended entitlements and notions of justice and freedom. I reject that view. What I see citizenship as, for better or for worse, is as a, an institution. And I'll explain what I mean. And this, this is nothing new, but uh, this view was, was expressed very forcefully by Charles Tilley, the social historian. But citizenship is an institution, and I use my own definition. Whether this is what an institution is doesn't matter, neither here nor there. It contains three, three things that I don't think you can do away with citizenship without doing away with its emancipatory potential. The first, uh, the first is, and this is also I have to say, one looks at it in the praxis of citizenship is very true, citizenship has an idea of individuals as role holders. As citizens, you are typically members of a community, even if we believe in a cosmopolitan community, it's still a community. This gives you a series of entitlements, responsibilities, and at one level, some sort of external identity as a citizen. Secondly, citizenship as an institution involves a series of practices, citizenship, expressing practical and expressive outcomes. And what I mean by that is, if we take the notion of citizenship, I vote, typically the typical notion of the most fundamental element of citizenship, voting in national elections. That is both leads, hopefully, or maybe not hopefully, to a changing government, holding government to account. It also is an effective act. That is how we identify it to a large extent. That people are mainly concerned with their right to vote, not because they think it will make a difference, but somehow because it gives them some self-recognition of themselves as equal and free members within that community. And the third thing I think citizenship always does is it patterns human activity across time and space, that what we have is we see a series of citizenship practices that we identify as a particular expression of citizenship because citizenship enables us to do that. So putting a bit of paper in a box is seen here as various times as voting in the UK elections, if it's done in the UK territory, according to the constituents, and there's a series, there's a history to that, and hopefully a future projection to that. It stabilises ex expectations about, if you like, what entitlements are, what, how they're identified across a particular period and territory. Now, my view is that these three elements, which I've expressed in very general terms for the time being, and I'll go into the particular identifications in a moment, are very important. You can't get away with them. 
You can't rid them. Firstly, if citizenship is just seen as a series of ideals and norms against which to monitor entitlements or state activity, it does away with the praxis of citizenship. That citizenship is something that is continually being renegotiated and transacted. Something that I think if one looks at how citizenship has evolved, not only conflicts with the genealogy of citizenship, but is disenfranchising. States and citizens are, if you like, measured against some empty universal. Secondly, citizenship has a particular genealogy. If people are interested in emancipatory politics, why use such a conservative notion as citizenship? Why not just go for radical democracy? And thirdly, I will argue, and this is the most important point, because of these, each of these structures is important, there's a dangers of universalization, of seeing it in terms of just freedom and quality, that you erase these structures and each of them does something very, very significant that we should hold on to. And within that, citizenship is a reflexive critique of these structures. And I'll explain what I mean as I go through these different, the different elements of citizenship as an institution, hopefully making it slightly, slightly more sense of it and slightly more accessible. First of all, what are the institutional features of citizenship as I see them? It involves, first of all, a sense of association of the, with the other. Classic thing, free and equal membership and participation in a community. The thing about citizenship is it was never a community of family or a community of friends. Citizenship is never that. It is with the nation a community of strangers. And if one looks at the history of strangers, strangers that are not just strange in the sense that we are all to each other, fundamentally different, but strange in the sense that they are invisible. And citizenship calls for a very particular, like, strong recognition of both their strangeness, they are away, they go indefinitely back in the past, the most visible expression of that is the tomb of the unknown soldier, someone who is so strange no one knows who they are, but we are expected to generate effective qualities with them. But the bond of recognition is very strong. There is a shared responsibility for each other. There is both assimilation and recognition of each other's singularity in a very strong and mutually constitutive way here. Now that is, is the first, first element that I think is common to all forms of citizenship that I can see. It is the element of, if you like, expending, a compact, extending a compact between individuals. The second element of citizenship is system differentiation and integration. What I mean by this is that citizenship is used always to tie us, or to tie individuals, to other people, to a territory, to a sense of shared values, and to a polit political system, be it through ideas of nationhood, ideas of statehood, ideas of civic values, or ideas of the entitlements to which a citizen is owed. 
So if one looks in the classic, if you like, martial view of citizenship, it in a sense was the citizenship, the citizen and state reconstituting each other. Citizenship starts off as protection from feudalism, civil autonomy. As you get the growth of the public sphere, it becomes the state as a political entity. Citizenship is seen as membership rights in a political system. The growth of the welfare state, you have the growth of social rights and one season writers who follow Marshall such as Bryn Turner this idea as one has moved towards if you like the state government of risk of citizens having a right to ontological security to protection to sort of protection of a certain status so the citizen and the political system are used to mutually constitute each other what the political system does what territory it has how far it goes back, how it extends into the future, etc. And this isn't just, I think, done, if you like, at a conceptual level. If you read historic, historic, uh, historical accounts of citizenship, one finds citizenship was used to mobilise constituencies. The, the Athenians, with the idea of citizenship, was used to differentiate citizens from metics. These were rural labourers or slaves to create, if you like, a strong urban class, the idea of citizenship as it was invoked both in the French Revolution and through the French state. The citizenship was based on residence and then citizenship evolved through the military establishment or the secular education system. It was always seen that, if you like, it was argued by historians that the French army, uh, historically, French, French secular education was central to a sense of shared obligation, which is why you could get citizenship through, if you like, membership of the foreign legion and even historians have looked at the French Revolution and the Universal Declaration of Rights have noticed that actually when it came to practice to looking at the membership of the assemblies whilst they enlarged the franchise considerably it was it still excluded many groups it was still a property group it still largely included, excluded the rural poor and the urban poor labourers, artisans etc it was securing the bedrock for if you like a, French, a new French political state. So, so with every citizenship, I argue, I mean, I'd argue this is important to achieving some idea of, for example, concept of the political, concept of the welfare state, concept of place, etc. You can't do away with it. The third feature of citizenship is that it provides a location of human agency in the government of ourselves. I mean, so going back to the earlier side, citizens are required to play all kinds of roles under citizenship. But if you look at the literature, both historical and theoretical on citizenship, one of, if you like, its more rhetorical qualities is its emphasis on the place of the individual and the individual's, if you like, centre in the political system, be this Rousseau or Habermas. Habermas, if you look at it, his notion of constitutional patriotism as it's evolved, is this idea of at the heart of citizenship is the public autonomy through the individual's participation in the public sphere gives the justification for, if you like, constraints on private autonomy that he or she in some way half consented to it through participation or deliberation as a free and equal. It's an endless circle between public and private autonomy 
where the institutions are almost done out of the account. And one finds that in other approaches that are vaguely contractarian. Needless to say, governmentality literature has also picked up on this. They are sceptical of citizenship because, of course, they point out that it, like any field of subjectivity, is a plane through which government enacts its policies and systems of of discipline. And this has been picked up in the literature by those who, if you like, have a more emancipatory bent. They've said, take the individual seriously. So we have all these forms of insurgent citizenship, differentiated citizenship, etc. And the fourth point of all views of citizenship are that all citizenship is a point of critique for the insufficiency of the current arrangements. My argument is that this fourth point has often been used to emasculate and get rid of the other three points. Citizenship is an evolutionary concept, but it's necessarily quite a conservative concept because it calls first and foremost for reflexive self-critique by the other arrangements of what they offer under the three previous categories. Now, why do I think it's important to see citizenship as an institution, and why do I think it's important in in terms of these four categories? Institutions stabilise these four categories. What would happen if you said that this doesn't matter? Well, there's two forms where people argue this, and then I'll get on to Europe, hopefully. One is... One form says, to everyone, they're due. This is cosmopolitan citizenship. Taken to its infinite progression, it's to everyone, everything. And that view, which, if you like, is contained almost exclusively within this, concern with an infinite lack, seeks to almost erase the other three points. We don't need to worry about system integration, location, it's just to everyone, they're due. Now, what are the problems, in my view, of a cosmopolitan citizenship? Where we said, to everyone, they're due. There are a number. First of all, it tries to erase the idea that there is an outside that you can get away, get away from the idea of there always being an inside and an outside. Now, this idea of the fact that there must inevitably be an outside to every inside is expressed within our own identities, which distinguish between what am I and who am I, or recognition that we are all, in some sense, ultimately very different. There are various ways of putting it. But without trying to engage in a debate for which I'm unqualified, Just think about an ultimate cosmopolitan citizenship. What would happen to people who are unwilling or unable to claim their citizenship rights? Or in some reason, what fault for the non-realisation of these citizenship rights? Their place in such a a world is only to be pathologised as either mad or bad. So if you took, just imagine the whole world disappeared other than the United Kingdom and we have universal suffrage in the UK we argue of course that is a form of we would then be the cosmos in one, one sense but of course we, are, we say we are raised from the political system a number of people who can't vote because they're too mad if you're in the US 
you'd have raised them because they're too bad or because they're incapable because they haven't registered properly or for corrupt reasons. The and well, Caesar says it's the most visible expression at the moment in Pakistan. Anyone who wanted to support Imran Khan's party can't. By they have participated in a democracy, they can obviously not vote, but the argument is that we basically have two kleptocrats who've won the election. There's a choice between them or a dictator. I don't think anyone, I mean, I'm quite happy to be sued about these points, but I don't think anyone seriously de- denies that those two parties are associated with quite a degree of clientelism. The party which offered a new way was absent from the suffrage. There inevitably has to be some room for, um, for the outside. And even someone like Simon Sharma, as a, as, a, as a historian or other theorist, pointed out the consequences of this when examining the universal ideal of citizenship as expressed in the French Revolution. It was used to attack aristocrats, the church. They would become non-citizens. They didn't follow particular purposes. You had to root out everyone who was at fault, this is the first thing, for denying citizenship. Now, one way of getting around this is what some cosmopolitan scholars do, and I think it's very dishonest, is to root cosmopolitan citizenship as the outside. They say there's the world of politics, of the nation state or whatever, the world of politics, however we define it. Cosmopolitanism is some apolitical ideal that is the outside. It's for everyone that's not included. The difficulty with this argument is it locates citizenship as ultimately the point of arid protest and marginalisation. It loses all its emancipatory ideas. And one sees this in writings... Habermas or Arendt who point out the idea of cosmopolitanism is almost the worst place to be. It's a thin notion that only comes up when you're a violet, you've suffered a huge violation of your human rights. There is no place for you. It is also present in the idea of systems theory. People like Luhmann have pointed out that it is such as cos- cosmopolitanism and he would argue ecology are just points of protest, nothing, nothing more, uh, of a radical outside. And that might be very desirable, but do you want that as your heart of emancipatory politics? It locates it on the edges of power. Now, the third problem with this idea of erasing the institutional traits and seeing citizenship as some sort of endless lack is a point that's been made by people like Zizek and Dizanas. Zizek has argued that citizenship is about justice for victims, or human rights, he argues, but you can argue it for citizens, is justice for victims or those that do not have, yet have their entitlements. It is a justice that is to be applied by others, that we will help you, the victim, to get reparation or help you, the unentitled, to get your entitlement. What is never allowed is the idea of insurgency. Although there are one or two people that do now argue for insurgent citizenship, you do not find it in the praxis. You stand outside the community. The victims can never claim justice for themselves. So within citizenship, whereas fundamental rights scholars would always argue it in terms of citizenship, citizenship comes up with the idea of the social. The social was always was developed in the 19th century as a corrective to the excesses of the market. It was the endless point of liberalism for those who were excluded. The minute you were somehow got your entitlement, you disappeared. Now, this isn't an empty point. If you look 
That's someone like, and it's why it's particularly important with regard to migrants, if you look at someone like Arendt when she talks on the origins of totalitarianism about the ambivalence of Jewish emancipation, she says one of the problems of Jewish emancipation, although it was all very liberal, was it got rid of the discrete sense of Jewish identity, Judaism, as a particular point of political rights and privileges. Jews politically became invisible. They were no longer settlements or people of design. They were now the entitlements. They had votes. And it made them, she argued, in some sense more vulnerable in the absence of other supporting measures to subsequent, subsequent tyrannies. And this is a particular thing to consider for the migrant. If you give them a political vote, yes, they exercise their ballots. That's the citizenship. But after that, they become invisible. Is that some sort of, and a subject, you know, it's almost as if they've acquiesced to any kind of policies that marginalise them. So that's one danger why I think one has to be careful about taking the notions of association, system integration, and subjectivity seriously. And embedding them with a certain institutional presence over time. Now, there is another approach to this, to each their due, which goes the other way. This finds its expression most obviously in differentiated citizenship. And this says what has happened is that we haven't taken the notions of association or system differentiation or subjectivity seriously enough. That to really give true citizenship, emancipatory citizenship, we need stronger notions of association, which have stronger respect for singularity. We must have more fluid communities which are more sensitive to mixed identities. We must have ideas of subjectivity which are more sensitive to ideas of political agency in some sort of genuinely participatory sense. The difficulty with these views is that they destabilise. They, they call for almost a hyperactivity. They destabilise the notions of association system differentiation and subjectivity to the point where they almost become meaningless. They turn them in on themselves. So if you take the notion of association, at the heart of the notion of association is a central tension between singularity and shared responsibility. You can go two ways with that. Either that we don't take enough respect for singularity, which obviously is the politics of difference, or the more universal core that shared responsibility, insofar as it needs some change of my own responsibilities, requires, requires me to do more and more for the stranger, to die for them, to kill for them, in the most assimilation way, to be governed by them at its most strongest notion. Similarly, with system integration, you can always say, oh, well, we should find new forms of political community, new forms of political system that are more reflexive. Now, the point is that this can once again go on endlessly. And I'll just give one practical example. Where's the idea of the status law in Hungary? That Hungary has been renegotiating the idea of Hungarian citizenship and how it affects to non-resident Hungarians for a considerable amount of time. And it's destabilized what that has meant. It has created a series of tensions, whatever the rights and wrongs, with neighboring states who have seen it as justifying interference in their own political community. But people have pointed out that it's actually been quite detrimental in many ways for Hungarian notions of citizenship as it's affected debates about 
levels of entitlement within the welfare state, who can vote, etc., etc., in a way that has become continually destabilizing. Whichever way the debate should go, whether it should recognize non-residents or just residents. And simultaneously, subjectivity, if you take it to its nth degree, just becomes an expression of human will. It almost evaporates the subject, which is why the subject has become such a difficult concept to pin in philosophy. So my argument, crudely, is that you have to take these four elements quite strongly. To do otherwise is too dangerous. And it's because each of them serve a particular function and they have to be embedded with a certain presence. Now that's all very well. What's that got to do with Europe? Well, the traditional presence that has been used has been the straw doll of the nation state. This is almost a straw doll argument. The nation state has been used to give, to provide the institutional presence I showed in the second slide, and to generate, for better or for worse, notions of subjectivity, association, and system differentiation. And my argument is, the citizenship, and this is how we have to think of it, it's the only way to make sense of it. We can find other things for radical democracy if you want. Now, this is so central to these other things. It's a relatively conservative concept, which asks existing structures to be taken as a given. Existing notions of association, system differentiation, subjectivity, etc., but points to their own lack on their own terms. And actually, if you look at the literature on citizenship, that is what it does. You cannot find, I would argue, any central independent ethic. So, what do we find in... And this is a straw doll argument, if ever there was one. Classic arguments of citizenship. Arguments about... Nationals and migrants, membership rights, who should be members? Now, it is always cast in terms of nationals versus non-nationals. Arguments about entitlements. Does citizenship go far enough to be active or genuinely emancipatory in terms of social environment rights, active citizenship, etc.? Once again, it's about what the state gives to its um, citizens. And thirdly, one finds, if you like, a politics of deference and multiculturalism, the question of recognition. How... How is membership recognized? Does it misrecognize the members on their own terms? Now, what's interesting is that each of those debates has occurred relatively independently from each other. Taking the nation state's lack, the universe, we never has an argument which says, I've never seen an argument in the citizenship literature, which if you took them all together, saying a Congolese, if we say Congo is, I think, one of the worst or the most unstable places to be in the world, a Congolese woman has the right to a minimum wage here in the United Kingdom of £100 per hour and to set up her own, if you like, independent political zone here in the UK. If you are trying to gener generate a, a really independent ethos, you might want to bring these together somewhere. I mean, that is a very crude one. They don't, for reasons that the literature is stuck with the critique of different elements of the prevailing hegemony, which is the nation-state. Now, that's all very well. What has that to do with Europe? Well, clearly, over time, there's been concern, and citizenship has called for this, with the insufficiency of the nation-state. People point to the growth of dual nationality, migra migration, yeah, don't worry, um, globalisation, new international organisations, we've seen that 
unaccountable, but suggests new, new, new forms of political system. And it all operated at a sense of the lack of the nation state. It couldn't regulate any of these things through a unitary optic in a sufficiently sensitive way. And then you create, get European citizenship. And European citizenship as developed, as the first institutional presence of something else, to my mind suggests three things, or it could have suggested three things in the early 90s. The first is it was concerned with building up its own independent form of, if you like, Euro European statehood, of system building, an independent new political community. One finds evidence for that if you want it, in the initial intergovernmental conference on political union at Maastricht, the idea was citizens were there to, if you like, mobilise and create active subjects who would legitimate the union. It was set up as a separate way from the other, the other IGC that was taking place in Maastricht. The European Parliament elections, the Citizens Act for this new, if you like, European public sphere, and all the concerns about the accountability of EU institutions. That here there is some sort of, if you like, free and equal membership. Although, interestingly enough, when we look at the accountability of EU citizenships, they're put in more general terms. There's undoubtedly an element of that. Secondly, EU citizenship realised it was not creating a unitary space in the way that national citizenship claimed for itself. It was arguing for a politics of coordination. But EU citizenship is, is unique, and this is one of the most interesting things about it, in that there's a coordination between EU and national regimes. It must complement, not replace, national citizenship. And if one looks in very crude terms at what that means, it's not just that national laws must arrive, uh, survive, but reading through the law in EU, the central bonds of association as perceived by EU law should be national in the first instance. So when it's dealt with things like war benefits, entitlements for students, it's always said we can't give them to anyone because there's first and foremost the idea of a national community which must share these goods out among itself. And thirdly, of course, EU citizenship picked up this discourse of insufficiency. Most of the stuff for which we know it is concerned with the poor treatment of the non-national, the EU citizen that goes to a host state and doesn't have rights, be they socio-economic rights, um, certain municipal rights, should be right to vote in municipal elections, etc. And one finds this at all kinds of levels. EU law has been used to ask member states to engage in far more active notions of anti-discrimination law, a form of politics of difference. The most interesting argument, the most trivial one, is diplomatic protection. That if your state can't represent you abroad, you can go somewhere, you can go to any other EU state. It is the ultimate the most flagrant example of a lack of the idea of the lack of national sufficiency. Now, my argument, and I sort of want to finish too long so you can tell me why I'm wrong, is these first two have completely atrophied over the last 10 to 15 years. If you're looking at European citizenship as systems building, well, sociologically, it's been disaster, disastrous. Without going into all the things you would need to create a political system, which the EU doesn't have, maybe monopoly of violence, shared territory, etc. There's the weakness of the public sphere, poor representative institutions, and the fact that when you have a referendum, people don't want to vote on Europe. This was the most damning thing about the French and Dutch referendum. 
that it wasn't a constitutional moment. The constitutional text was the fifth or sixth order preference in both of them for the way voters voted the right the way they didn't. They were not interested in constitutional moments, for or against. And I would argue there's a real issue why that would be desirable on its own terms. I mean, why is the shared responsibility for each other so strong that if you want a system, it has to be shared? It's not a shared recognition, it's a shared responsibility. So if you're a non-pacifist, you will die or kill for the other. If you're a pacifist and you say no citizenship should involve that, which is a bit ahistorical, that you should be governed by the other. This is not something that strikes me as necessarily a desirable thing to recreate just for itself. The other point that's sometimes made is, well, it gives certain rights to certain public goods. Now, the argument about public goods, of course, is we might get protection of the environment, trade liberalisation against that. There are certain goods from collective action, but obviously there's lower voice. You have a smaller voice in half a billion, a unit of half a billion people, even though it can perhaps achieve more. And sorry, I, I did this quickly. The point about whether that is a good thing, of course, will be a pragmatic question, whose value will vary over time. Just creating European citizenship for the sake of it can never address the contingency of the value of that. Now, very brief, briefly, I'll try not to go into the case. If you look at EU citizenship as a coordination, what's interesting about it as, as a failure is its deference, not coordination. It says the national bonds that presuppose solidarity should be untouched. So, for example, to get grants or financial support for student, as a student, you have to show social integration, whatever that means, in your host state. You have to have lived there for a long time. Public morality, national security, the central elements of repressive conformity, these are national measures. Okay. Secondly, alongside that, the element of national citizenship is taken as a given. Um, it's never questioned in a strong way when we look at this coordination, which one would expect. And thirdly, even if it was... What is this ethical presence of European citizenship that is being questioned against? European citizenship, when we've had questions of coordination, where EU law is considered treatment of states by their own nationals, has just expressed the notion to free movement. Now, there are two cases. This is someone who was, the capital was a case about someone who was on benefits, and a condition was availability to work. And he argues a Belgian. And he argued, well, I just want to go to France and still get my money from Belgium. And that was the citizenship norm. Morgan was a German student who wanted to go to Wales for a couple of years to study, but hadn't done enough time in the German university system. And his argument was a different one. He wanted to travel, but he wanted to go to university education abroad. Now, to my mind, they seemed radically different. To put them just on the notion of free movement was, yes, you could do, but it was ethically almost hollow. It was very, very unnuanced. What was this process that's being coordinated that it can justify coordination and in terms critique of the nation state? So this got me thinking that European citizenship is just about insufficiency. And then it runs back to all the problems that I talked about with cosmopolitan citizenship and differentiated citizenship. If it's just about insufficiency, there are a number of problems with it. 
First of all, there is no reason why Europe can claim monopoly over the insufficiencies of national citizenship. And one actually sees this, and this goes back to my paradox, when we look at the insufficiencies. Member states give a lot of rights to non-EU nationals in certain circumstances. No one claims that Europe has a monopoly of, or no one should claim that Europe has a monopoly of rights. And one can see the general grant of social rights and human rights, one has to say, to large numbers of non-EU nationals. One has to explain away things like dual nationality laws, amnesties for irregular migrants, etc. These are silenced under a politics of always all-encompassing European citizenship. The second thing is that EU citizenship as an institutional presence, of course, has its own sufficiencies, both as a critique of the national insufficiencies and in its own terms. I won't say too much about this, but it's clearly something that privileges the mobile, EU nationals, and those, for those who know this, you have to have lawful residence in another member state. So those that can get the status, whatever that means. And it requires a variety of things. Thirdly, if you are looking at insufficiently ethic, the counter-ethic, it is not just to be a point of protest, is very thin. I don't just go back to my previous slide about free movement, but if we go to notions of association and subjectivity within member states, these are actually the central things that our elections are contested over. How much we pay for the welfare state, constitutional reform. There are no such debates in a meaningful way at a European level. I mean, this is an empirical point, but there's been no intellectual agenda created for it yet. Now, the next two points are the disappearing entitlement and the politics of invisibility. The politics of invisibility is people... Let me take the politics of invisibility. EU citizens construct citizens' entitlements, but there is... I'm not just talking about non-EU nationals. There's a whole group of people that are then rendered invisible. They're not even non-EU citizens. And a good example is the Austrian education debate. Austria was very concerned about the number of people, number of non-Austrians, that were taking up university places. There were a fixed number. It was put into terms of debate, it wasn't going to change, 100,000, of EU citizenship. German nationals in particular should have the right to go to Austria. Now, the argument, of course, was equal access. But, of course, this squeezed out a number of students, Austrian students, who would otherwise have been able to go to university. It's not necessarily to say this was wrong. They were rendered invisible. The student who now had to get a slightly higher mark had no place in the legal discourse or the political discourse. It was meritocratic between Austrians and Germans who had equal school leaving marks. That may be right. That might be the standard we want to measure it across. But it has rendered a particular group invisible. And this also happens with citizens when they get their entitlements. The best example is actually the classic case of not the Polish plumber, but the Polish farm worker. These are citizens, EU citizens. They have the right to work here in the UK. But of course, there is no concern in the EU citizenship with what happens to them in terms of the conditions of employment when they work. Anyone who knows the arrangement means that actually the current worker registration scheme, the way it works is you have to have employment before you get to the UK, which means that you have to go through an agency. Agencies, of course, compete for supplying services by saying they can get cheaper labour than anyone else. So there are strong incentives to uh, basically exploit workers. It, and this is why we have all the problems with gang masters, gap between employers and actual employees, that there's a, a politics of invisibility. This doesn't fall within citizenship. Just once the citizenship is just the entitlement to work, nothing more. 
So what I said, and I, I do apologise for overrunning, I can just overrun for five minutes, yeah. is I would like to go, I think citizenship can't solve these problems as a concept, to an idea of denizenship and politics of presence. Now, denizenship has been around for a while. And let me explain where I'm coming from. You know, the denizen has been used as a descriptive thing in leaving aside its origins in Anglo-French law in the 14th century and its use in the 18th century in the US. Various immigration scholars, mainly in immigration politics, have used it again and again. And I'll say what it means in a minute and why I think it's quite, quite important. I say the presence of European citizenship points to the need not just for a lack, a concern with the lack, but an independent ethical essence or presence, an institutional ethical presence outside the national framework. That is why they created European citizenship. In some inchoate way, they wanted something which wasn't just concerned with the lack, but something that has to have a bit more substance. The question is, what can that be? European citizenship, because it's termed, framed in terms of insufficiency, doesn't work for all the, I would hope, theoretical and practical reasons that I've argued. So it's an independent presence beyond those of reflexive national critique or self-critique to generate a new politics. Now, why do I like the idea of denizenship? Well, denizenship, as it first arose, came from the, comes from the, its origins of the word deins in Anglo-French law, Anglo law, 14th century, Norman, meaning to be within. Now, there is something nice, and this is what it's saying about the... Uh, the denizen, that if we said to all migrants, not necessarily we have a shared responsibility for you, but we recognise your co-presence and right to be within. Not just to be within a territory, but a shared space. This is not necessarily shared responsibility. But the idea of being within seems to be what a lot of people seem to value and want. And within is important when we go back to the idea that there must be an out and an outside. Secondly, denizenship was used in quite a strong way in English law in the 14th, well, actually up to the uh, 19th century, to give non-British nationals a right to pursue a livelihood. And one sees certain parallels here with all the work on urban citizenship. Now, a right to pursue a livelihood is not just a right to economic autonomy, but what it was at that time was a right to a certain security and independence from others. It was the right to manoeuvre, the right to make a living that was secure and not reasonably dependent on others. You know, it's recognising people on their own terms to create, if you like, lives from maybe other templates. Now, the third point of denizen. Denizen has always argued, oh, it doesn't give people political, sufficient political rights, etc., etc. But there's a third thing that gives it a tainted heritage. The denizen is a US reason. Were, they were the words used for the free slaves during, should we say, the period of slavery in the US. Slaves who made it to the north of the US were known as denizens. And so there's an inevitable, and this is obviously a danger, of it having a slightly racist heritage. But I think there is something that can be extracted from that. Leaving aside the strong racism associations with slavery. 
The United States was a single country, uh, in theory at least at that time. The recognition of the denizen status to, to the fleeing slaves was an invitation to those under the US political system who were most strange to it. Since the Dred Scott, the, the, the appalling Dred Scott judgment, states were allowed to have their own laws on slavery, but the idea as a consequence was that these people were to some extent politically and legally invisible. The Denison point was it was a concept to those that we find, an invitation to those that we find most strange to consider themselves secure. Leave aside the racist heritage of that in the US, which was its particular context, but that seems a particularly powerful invitation, that we invite you to pursue a livelihood and to be within, even though you are infinitely strange from us. And that is, I think, a, a, a possibly emancipatory feature of denizenship that you can never really get in citizenship because of its other features, which must persist. I'm not saying get rid of citizenship, I'm just saying Europe should find out. Now, what would a European right to denizenship mean? I'll start with the bottom one. The right to denizenship is those most rich. There's no reason to make it conditional on nationality at all. I don't see why that's important. And I'll say that, actually, if you look at what's happening, it doesn't seem that important in practice. But it would involve three things. It would involve a right to work, to set up a business, to family life, and to non-discrimination. This must be central to the pursuit of a safe livelihood. Okay. I would argue that it would involve municipal political rights. The idea of the city, cities are very rarely taken as political communities in the sense of a, an autonomous political system that's differentiated. Yes, we have municipal. It's a far more hybrid notion. So one has some sort of a genuine participatory governance. People are aware that their vote matters. Ideology is less about creation of political subjectivity. And interestingly enough, one finds examples where this is recognised. One is Ireland, the Irish Electoral Act, which gives rights to everyone that is a resident who is over 18, no matter how long they've been there, to vote, largely because cities are treated in this way. There was an attempt by the city of Vienna to do this, but it was overruled by the Constitutional Court. And this seems very important. What it does not give the right to, I would, I would say, incidentally, it shouldn't give the right to European Parliament elections, but I'll answer that in questions is marginal, right, marginal work, because the idea is that you should have a right to pursue a livelihood, not a right to come here to be exploited, with all the problems that exist. And as we're not talking about shared responsibility, it is not clear why there should be a right to social assistance, just as there should not be a, a, a responsibility to do jury service, go to the military, or any of these other things. That is first and foremost about shared responsibility which seems to me something that works very well at a national level. Now, if I can just find my final slide. Actually, if you look at what happens, a highly, well, I'd say a highly elitist view of that does happen. If you look at EU laws at the moment, Basically, denizen rights are granted by most member states, all the ones I set out, to long-term residents, these people who have been here more than five years, and you can get it pretty much if you set up a business. Typically, that means showing that you're financially dependent and you have 200,000 quid to invest 
in the British economy. You know, it's elitist, it's for a particular group, but there are denizen rights there out there for non-EU nationals. Secondly, if one looks carefully at EU citizenship, as is portrayed, many of the socioeconomic rights are not granted in a very generous way in the practice. Welfare tourists currently do not have the right. You do not have the right to be a welfare tourist in the EU under EU citizenship. I'll just tell you as a lawyer. Increasingly, where EU citizenship was most costly, which was in the field of university education, member states have tried to peg it back through legislation because it was, was impacting on their, wel- uh, on, their, on their welfare budgets. And of course, the most significant fields of EU migration in recent times have been with the A10 states, all the recent states other than Cyprus and Malta. And if you look at what was given in the initial by most member states, it was in one form or another the right to work, formally, informally, under a quota or self-employed. Migration took place in big ways to most member states, but not the right to social assistance or social security. These were granted in very few states, only really Ireland and Sweden. Now, that is a model that is not far far from mine, but it is perverted. You can see it grants rights, you know, denizen rights in an atrophied way. It's not a genuinely emancipatory ethic. The citizenship rights that are given are false gods. And for that reason... I would prefer that we move and be more honest to a European model of denizenship, which is genuinely universalist and based less around the insufficiency of national structures and more around creating a genuine transnational ethic. I will stop there. very much, Damien. I, I forgot to say at the beginning that um, Damien's my boss, which means that um, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> but let's see what What's other better? <laughs> I, I actually do have a bit of a question, though, if, if I may take uh, the advantage of sharing from just quickly. Um, what, one of the things I wasn't clear about towards the end was just, just a, a clarification first is Were you proposing that there would be two forms of uh, um, identification available to an individual? You could either be a citizen or you could be a denizen. Is that... Um, Or or were you you going to eventually replace all of the citizenship structure with something more denizen-like? I think there should always be citizenship but there should be denizenship as well. Now, let me explain what I mean. I'm not proposing in any way at all, because national citizenship does many fine things, and one could argue, I mean, there are many things it doesn't do, that you should move to some universalist notion of denizenship. I think I'd run into the problems that I critiqued. Whether states want to give dual citizenship or not is a matter for themselves. It does strike me, however, and one sees this with, in fact, it's almost implicit in the idea of the migrant, the idea of the migrant is someone who harks back to a home and something of a great effective place. That is not the territory where they currently reside, whether they've resided there for two weeks or 20 years. And they should always have a place, therefore, that is a place of citizenship. Whether they should have another place of citizenship, I think, is an interesting question. It wasn't the one really I addressed. The question is whether there should be you know, this transna- transnational ethic. 
alongside it. And I'm suggesting that insofar as we want that, which I do think we do for all kinds of reasons, it should be one of denizenship. So what, what would the... Um, what would the, the denizen lack with respect to somebody who's a citizen? Why shouldn't we all just have denizen status? Why, wouldn't, why, why would you continue to have, as it were, two, twi twin streams here? Right, well, classically, let's just take, take a, a cliched and undoubtedly highly stereotyped and politically dodgy example. A young Pole who comes over here to work after three or four weeks. Now, they would probably still want their citizenship rights, and that's just for effective reasons. The possibility to vote back in Poland would be important. The idea there is somewhere back there they could vote. Yeah? The rights they would not be entitled to under their model here in the UK would be the right to vote in national British elections. I would probably argue for the Scottish voting. Neither would I, under my model, they have the right to vote for the Scottish or Welsh Legislative Assembly. Well, for reasons that I will explain in a moment, European Parliament elections. They simultaneously would not have the right to certain forms of social assistance, which they would get if they became a citizen of the UK. Now, there might be at a certain point, be that moment, where they and the UK authorities think, well, I want to become a citizen, and you do all the, uh, the tests, etc., etc., whatsoever. But that's, that, that calls for quite a high-level of effective obligation and association on both par parties' parts. I do think it involves a sense of shared responsibility okay. for common narratives, okay. which they might not want. I think it's clearer now. Let's, let's see what other people think. Yeah, one at the back. Is there a mic in the room? Or no, okay, just, if you could just speak, speak up then, please. Um, maybe my deal I'm just told this. Yeah. I have some paranoia. Yeah. Well, my question is about the government issues. I see that you, at the end of the presentation, uh, give some information about the economic approach. And my first question is it's enough to take this kind of you know, information about the citizenship of the consequences? And why don't you think about the reliability of measures, uh, of this kind of measure or uh, approach to policy makers? What kinds of uh, information or background can we get to develop more, you know, more public policy in order to discuss it from Okay, I may not have understood your question properly and if so please tell me if, I'm, if I've misunderstood it or also if I'm saying something foolish which as I understood you, you were really asking what were the main policy implications of my suggestion now this isn't certainly this isn't a very rigorous answer but if you look at the current situation we have huge problems I think in terms of human dignity with, and in pragmatic uh, at a pragmatic level in terms of how, how it affects, shall we just say, for a shorthand, our society with, with issues of irregular migration, asylum, etc. It is thought that most of these people want to come here for a better life, to pursue a livelihood. I mean, that may be tr 
Uh, in fact, undoubtedly, most asylum seekers, that is untrue, because they come from so, so few states. It's, it's implausible. But it's pathologized at the moment. And the other argument that is always made, of course, is welfare tourism. Now, the implications of my approaches are to say there is nothing wrong with the, the first element. It should not be pathologized. These people are very enterprising. In fact, there's no evidence you really do anything other than create all kinds of blights by trying to stop this, because inevitably people who migrate to look for a livelihood are often the most enterprising people around. They will actually leave the significant others to try and create a new livelihood for themselves, which is a huge thing to do. I would say that shouldn't be pathologized. That is, if you like, to use this language, a fundamental right. The issue of welfare tourism, however, there is an issue there because it implies a shared responsibility for them, which maybe you, 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 uh, you would want to differentiate. That we may want you know, shared responsibilities for our citizens, which we might define very broadly, but we might want people to have a presence and to be part of a community space that we call our own and rendered visible without giving them the same notion of co-shared responsibility. Damien, one of the things that is worrying me, though, with this is you've got an idea here of a recognition of a dignity which, which yeah. is at the moment being pathologized. Yeah. But the way you want to do that seems to be through the institutionalization of a difference of dig dignity mm -hmm. with respect to a citizen. Yes, that's true. And, uh, uh, okay, good, it's true. <laughs> so. well, I'll, I'll answer that next, uh, in a minute. You have to speak up, I'm sorry. No, you use the idea of the migrant um, quite a lot. In relation to that, my question is... Um, isn't it a danger if we try to attach more substantive rights to those already within and recognising that they're within? It would be increasing incentive for states to stop more coming in. Um, and we've seen obviously the rise of like, control measures and prevent, preventing people coming in. And if you start saying that we care about those within, then states might start to get rid of them. Now, of course, you can't use that logic very comfortably because it sounds like I'm saying we shouldn't care about those within or increasing their rights just because create a new system of perverse incentives I think is a question yeah maybe it's a speculative there's a question for speculation with regard to your other point that it doesn't address the question of xenophobia I think once you have more than one political community you will always run the risk of xenophobia okay that or you know of disliking the other political community just because or members just because they're not part of your own. Uh, it's almost it's, it's difficult to avoid. That, to my mind, 
although it's a bad, is a less worse bad than the idea of a universal citizenship where there's only one political community for the reasons that I've said. That you have to say that anyone that is not part of that community is almost invisible. Um, it, is also worse, it is also a less worse bad, in my view, than the opposite, which is a sort of hyper-differentiated political community where we, to try and get rid of xenophobia, we are constantly attuning ourselves to creating new forms of sensitive political community, which ultimately, I think, become very unstable. I mean, the, the classic example of that is the former Yugoslavia. The more statelets you've broken it into, the more possibilities for xenophobia and divergence have been, have been created. People haven't got together in any significant way by creating the current entity that we know as Bosnia-Herzegovina. They're as differentiated and as torn as they ever were. Um, your argument about differentiation. Or did you want me to, to answer another question? Answer your argument. We do have another question. Yeah, answer me in the pub. Which is a problem of differentiation. <laughs> yeah, sorry, speak up. Yeah. When one thinks about citizenship and the traditional uh, concept of Well, there's, there's two answers. One level, of, although I would argue for European, it's distinctly non-European. It doesn't, the, the argument is for something that in no way is based around having a nationality of the EU 27. So in that sense it isn't. But I, one of the arguments I would make for citizenship is to do with political identity. Because I think uh, this is one of the reasons why I would argue for differentiation. The citizenship is partly about creating political subjects. The famous quote about the risorgimento creating Italians. And the reason why I argued for municipal elections differently from other elections is I don't think I want that in the idea of denizenship. I think it wants to, it isn't about creating political subjects with all the problematics that that involves. It can create entitlements, but it creates a very strong sense of obligation. That the political subject, the citizen traditionally, has had to die for their nation and has had to kill for their nation. And until you can get round that point, and you can, you can say, oh, well, you live in a more you know, cuddly no, we world now. We don't. We don't. We don't. <laughs> I don't I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a skeptic. But you will have some people who are going to have to go and die and other ones who can stay there because they're just denizens. Yes, but the ones who die are citizens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, one question is, in fact, you can sort of slightly hit on the second part of my question. Um, 
example, um, the model which um, uh, you think now we should be looking towards in the context of managing and also attracting the large quantities of skilled labour that you think Europe will need, as predicted to be from now for the next 30, 40 years of demographic time on leases and so on and so on. Is, is that basically what we should be working towards? Secondly, if that is the case, um, I just wonder in the context of the current debate, which is all tending towards finding ways of reinforcing identity and integration, whilst the Denison model would seem to be not seen an imposition on, let's say, conservatively minded um, native population in the sense that they can't be welfare tourists and so on. Is there exclusion from the pattern of sort of thick relationships which gain citizenship likely to cause resentment, in fact, so picking up on Simon's point, uh, and would lead to their marginalisation, particularly if there is an economic downturn, threat of war, or whatever, because they might find themselves in a no man's land, not parasitic on the welfare state, and they're earning their keep, and they're bringing in enterprise and contributing to aggregate utility, but they are outside that thick web of relationships, which generally most Western societies now seem to be looking to reinforce in our kind of um, rather unstable and uh, confusing world. Thank you. Okay, I think, as I understand your arguments, Morris, the pragmatic arguments, so, you know, sort of what will happen in the reality, and there's, there's two arguments. I mean, you raise the question of the skills shortages and pragmatic economic arguments. You could go the skills shortage, the pensions gap, necessary for, necessity for cheap labour for the services, service sector, both in London or California. This has all been reasons why states instrumentally have been very keen to have non-nationals. I mean, this is a highly instrumental argument, and I would, it's a reason why this, I would, this argument might be attractive to them, but I would ha argue that, it, I would hope that uh, they, could be, they could be taken a little bit more on their own terms. Now, in terms of will it lead to marginalisation, this has always been the classic argument against denizenship, that somehow they're a second-class citizen who will be picked on at a certain moment. And I'll give two arguments to it. One is, uh, is you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a great, uh, it's not a rigorous point, but it's uh, best of imperfect alternatives. I'm told that we have about a million people, I mean, this is the, the statistics given, I don't know if it's true, there's a million irregular migrants at any one time living in London. London is one of the greatest sources of, or the greatest points of irregular migration anywhere. It also strikes me as one of the most vibrant places anywhere where there are least, least tensions. Now, these people operate and have an invisible presence at the moment. They have a sub-denizenship status. Um, my argument is, I think if you, if you gave them denizenship, that is better than what they currently, they currently have. It is at least a formal recognition. Whether it would list to marginalisation, well, they can't be accused of free riding because uh, under this model they're, they're not. Whether they would feel resentment at being governed by others, well, I think the simple argument is the fact they've chosen to move there to the sign that they don't. You see this with the ultimate yuppie migrant. These people are, you know, 
the international elite, most of them LSE high fee students, <laughs> they, they come around the world. Of course, they disenfranchise themselves politically when they go off and work for Goldman Sachs, but somehow the, the, you know, the 25 million quid bonus they get uh, at Christmas manages to calm down their feelings of exclusion. Uh, but there is an element of choice, because they have that mobility, that they, they have both exit and, well, the, ex the possibility of exit compensates for maybe the lack of voice, and they do have a voice in municipal politics, which is often what matters to them most. Most of them come to work in London, for example, rather than the UK, if you ask them. Okay, we've got, we've got a couple more. Well, we've got three at the moment. Mm. Uh, so I'm going to, oh, God, we've got four. Yeah, you want me to forget about you? Forget about your questions. <laughs> okay, we've got Can't one, some. two, and then three. So here first. Um, isn't there a, an issue about crowding and shortage of resources? And I mean, if you look at this in the Darwinian sense, presumably we can evolve uh, and give an expression to things like xenophobia and so on, which we've talked about, and which, which are part of that, and, and then and then that is translated into a uh, an evolutionary sense of what institutions come up, come up in various societies. And I'm wondering what, what uh, if, you, if, you, if you have a, an answer to what kind of specific institutional ways you might have of dealing with what happens in a situation when there's uh, a kind of suddenly an overcrowding and a shortage of resources, uh, of what sort of institutions might include um, the denizens. Um, in, in, in a process which would help to resolve that. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Right. I'm always a bit wary about using the language of crowding, etc. I mean, the reality is you can get very crowded places like Manhattan or Hong Kong, which are very vibrant and offer a very high level of life, high quality of life for many of the, for a large number of their inhabitants. Of course, people only come to places that offer an attractive quality of life. That is where migration happens. Migration, I have to be careful, I hope there's no one for Middlesbrough, but there is not much migration to Middlesbrough. Uh, there is migration to London because it offers opportunities. If one sees that the migration of Polish nationals that has occurred around the UK, but largely because of the system of gangmasters who have found contracted labour in areas of tourism or agriculture. That is why there are high levels in, um, in places like East Anglia, Paisley, or southwest of England. So I think one, one has, has to be careful that there is a certain, if you like, equilibrium here, even if one, if one, if one likes, likes that language. The second argument about migration... No, no, I'm coming to the question. About how you deal with the institutional... That, well, part of the question is it never arises because if the place becomes so unattractive, people won't, won't go there. That is one way of addressing the problem, if you like that argument or not. Just for yourself. But the sense answer is sort of institutional disequilibria. So the arguments, the examples are given in places like Slough or Peterborough. Now, traditionally, these places would have been seen as places of great growth if British nationals had gone there. Peterborough has been regenerated. It has never looked at that way because people say, oh, schools say we've got to hire a lot of Polish language teachers. And, of course, this is a problem that places of great growth face. It's not from international migration. The places who experience this the most are places like Shanghai, Sao Paulo, the non-OECD urban cities 
who are experiencing huge internal migration. Now, the way of dealing with that, this is where it goes back to my earlier point, is through a new form of urban politics. This is why urban politics becomes so important, uh, because it has to deal with all these delicate questions of housing, education, limited public resources, and how to allocate them and how to expand. Okay. No, I think it was... was, Did you not have your hand up? No, okay, then it's you. Yes, I don't see the cultural debate as, I mean, I haven't really thought enough about, I suppose, the relationship between that and, if you like, questions of multiculturalism. But there, there, there clearly is a strong recognition of the presence of that, I think, in the argument. Okay, the last one. Nice and loud, please. Possibly, I think no. That the, no I think because citizenship always implies the idea of shared responsibility somewhere, which I think, and that the fact that you come from a place, whether you like it or not, which I think is actually quite a valuable, a valuable thing. I mean, I, I think it's not true. The point about someone travelling for 20 years in Europe, I'm not suggesting that I haven't addressed and don't really want to address the question of whether citizenship should get in the way of people acquiring national citizenship or geocentrism. It's not a either or in my, in, my, in, my, in my argument. It's a and and. 
Um, the, the question about the traveling community is, is really interesting. I think it's, it's the hardest question. Of course, one of the problems of the, well, actually, one of the challenges for traveling communities is they don't have, in strong conceptions, a fixed sense of place in the way that other people do. And by just recognizing the mobility of, a, of, of them, there's a danger of just relegating them to exclusive denizenship status in my model, which I wouldn't want to do. I, should always, I would always want to say they should always have a place they could go back to that they could call home. And if you, my model is, yeah, it's not fluid to deal with something like the traveling community. You say we travel everywhere, nowhere's our home. I say you can have denizenship. But citizenship by itself, my argument is not enough. And the citizenship is rooted around a very fixed sense of place. So I think actually the, tra the traveling point is a, a strong point. Ex stop, you're going to have to stop. Okay, I'll stop You are a lawyer. I mean, it's quite clear that you're a lawyer. You want, to, you want these arrangements that will help us. And, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, think, and I think that is a really good thing. So thank you very much, David. <laughs>